The U.S. defense industry is large, complex, and competitive. It is also lucrative for those companies able to navigate it successfully. The American Society of Military Comptrollers helps bridge the gap between the boardroom and the battlefield while supporting transformation in the defense sector. The Business of Defense podcast brings you inside the companies working to achieve this directly from the business leaders and to understand how they create value for their companies and their customers. For more information on ASMC, visit asmconline.org. You are listening to the Motherhood Unstressed Podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm so glad that you're here. And if this is the first show that you've ever listened to, welcome. I'm so glad that you found the Motherhood Unstressed community, and uh, hopefully we'll be doing a deep dive into all the past episodes we've had over the years. And I'm excited, although it's not an easy topic to talk about, I'm excited to bring my guest to you today to talk about climate change. He is author and climate movement organizer Daniel Sherrill, and he's joining me this week for an expansive conversation on climate change, not what it is or how we solve it, we already know that this exists, but the emotion terrain of the crisis and how it feels to imagine a future and a family, uh, as most of us are parents, under the weight of the reality that the world is changing, it is warming up. Um, And we're talking about his new book, Warmth, and it's a fiercely personal account written from inside the climate movement. And in it, he lays bare how the crisis is transforming our relationship to time, to hope, and even to each other. So this is an episode that's not only going to talk about the emotional aspect, but I really ask him to expand on how we as parents can navigate this time. You know, it's it's crushing. It feels overwhelming. We don't even want to think about it. We kind of press it away from our purview. But at the same time, you know, it's in our DNA. It's instinctual to want to protect our children and to have a world where they can not only survive, but thrive and not be under the weight of natural disasters. And although this is the reality of the situation, we've already pushed the scales uh, in the wrong direction, there are still mitigating factors that we can take on as parents, as citizens of this country and of the world to make it better so that millions and millions of more people don't have to die. We still can take action. And that's what I really want you to get out of this interview today. It is an overwhelming, sad thing that's happening, but we can't give up. We can't give in to that. And so uh, I'm I'm really excited to share his work with you. Warmth is available on Amazon. It's also in the show notes. Uh, If you love this episode, please share it with a friend and please keep those reviews coming. Enjoy this episode with Daniel Sherrill. Hey guys, before we dive into this episode, I want to mention show sponsor R.S. Koso. Koso is a century-old traditional fermented drink out of Japan, and it's made from more than 100 vegetables, fruits, and plants. And because it's fermented, it contains probiotics, prebiotics, and postbiotics, and it tastes really good, actually. It's like a sweet Japanese plum juice. And I did the three-day cleanse last summer, and it came in this very tall, beautiful bottle with beautiful packaging. I almost didn't want to open it. Um, And I was afraid that I was going to be really tired and moody when doing a cleanse because that's pretty typical for me. Um, But I actually ended up having more energy and my skin was glowing. Also, people love Koso for helping them lose weight. You know, it's all about gut health. When your gut is healthy, you're going to be letting go of a lot of toxins and things that actually cause inflammation. So this is a great product also for weight loss. If you are interested in checking out Koso for yourself, be sure to use my code UNSTRESSED and head on over to rskoso.com. That's R-S-K-O-S-O dot com. 
Hello, Daniel. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. Thanks so much, Liz. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's not the the happiest uh, topic, but I think it's important that we do talk about it. Can you talk to us about the problem, as you call it, and how it became so central to the work that you do? So the problem, in a sort of basic sense, the problem is the word I use to refer to the climate crisis, which is uh, a monumental shift on... Uh, of um, how we interact with this planet that will um, that is happening right now that is dire that is violent and that is likely going to continue for the next century or two. Um, it sort of first came into my life. I grew up um, in suburban New Jersey in the '90s, which felt at the time like a very stable place. Um, it was, you know, according to the historian Francis Fukuyama, the end of history. You know, you went to the shopping mall, you came home. You had your little play dates with friends. Um, it was sort of the apotheosis of Clinton neoliberalism. Um, and I felt swaddled in its bosom. And at the same time, uh, my father is an oceanographer at Rutgers University, which is a very cool job. He went, he got to go uh, down to Antarctica um, for months at a time, most years when I was growing up um, and conduct research there about um, how um, particulate runoff from the continent interacted with plankton blooms in the ocean, very esoteric. Um, but he would come back with stories that were really disturbing for an eight-year-old, um, an eight-year-old who was very into National Geographic and had that <laughs> in my room. Um, you know, I could, I could tell he was disturbed and he would say things like, this isn't the same continent I, I was going to 10 years ago. Things are really changing in, on Antarctica. And it was sort of the canary in the coal mine down there um, because of the way warming, uh, because of the way that warming of global temperatures affects the ice caps, the poles actually warm faster than any other place in the world. Mm. Um, and so I was sort of aware of global warming as it was then called from a very early age in this way that it felt like um, based on what my father was telling me, I was kind of shocked that not every, not everybody was talking about this all the time. Um, and it seemed like this monumental thing that was coming for us. And yet there were like no mode, there were no cultural modes to talk about it. Um, and I didn't see many people around me talking about it besides my dad. Um, and I basically had no way to assimilate that knowledge. So I just went on with my life. You know, I was doing homework. I was, I went to high school. I was like, you know, basically a jock, but then I'd go home and read at night. And like, that wasn't, it didn't feel like my real life, but I wasn't, it wasn't until college um, where I was lucky enough to meet some amazing women who had already been politicized around the climate crisis. Um, uh, including one friend who'd grown up in Nairobi and who'd seen um, like a decadal drought that was deeply unusual, really affect day-to-day -day life mm -hmm. uh, in parts of uh, her country, Kenya, um, and had already been involved in some of the first, what are called the conference of the parties, these big UN meetings that were meant to tackle climate change. Um, and to me, it was sort of like, finally, okay, I thought this was just me. <laughs> caring about this thing. Um, and so together, I mean, them very much sort of like uh, taking me under their wing and teaching me about politics and organizing. We, um, 
with a few other folks helped found a campaign at our university to try to convince the president to divest our endowment, our endowment funds from the coal industry. Mm. The logic being, um, if what school is, is an institution that is meant to prepare its students for their future, it makes absolutely no sense to fund that education by investing in industry that is jeopardizing their future. Um, it felt like we were being undercut by the very institution that purported to prop us up. Um, and the deeper I got into that work, the more, the less it was about like penguins and polar bears and Antarctica, although it's also about them. And the more it was about rich people and poor people on this planet. Um, and the fact that many, many poor people, mostly in the global South, but also in this country, would suffer and were already beginning to suffer. And by suffer, I mean in very concrete ways, like, you know, in Basra, Iraq now, it's like 128 degrees, like you literally can't go outside between 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. Or by suffering, I mean in Bangladesh, because the seas are rising, the soil is more saline. And so a plot of land that a family has on which a family has grown crops for generations is subtly fallow. They cannot make a living. They cannot feed their family. That was already beginning to happen. That That is increasingly happening now. Um, even in affluent places like Germany, we saw with the floodings, mm -hmm. with, the, with the just apocalyptic, like biblical level flooding. This was a choice. You know, it wasn't just happening out of nowhere. Um, there were a number of extremely wealthy corporations um, the most uh, the most prominent being ExxonMobil, um, but plenty of other fossil fuel corporations and the politicians they bought who were making a choice to continue with a business model that was making that would uh, was was making millions of people suffer, um, and they were poor people without a lot of political capital, so they could get away with it, um, and that was obviously like atrociously immoral. But it was also clear it wouldn't be confined to just those people, that the problem they were creating by burning fossil fuels and putting carbon in the atmosphere was coming for all of us. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think by the time I graduated school, um, it was clear that this was going to be my life's work and that there was no greater challenge for my generation Um than to not only like preserve the basis for human civilization, because I think that's what's at risk here, but also use the crucible of the climate crisis to create a more just and equitable wor world and to throw out old models by which um, labor and resources are extracted from the poor and then they get the short end of the stick. Um, but actually, um, and that extraction mirrors the extraction we take from the earth we take and take and take, and then we dump all our trash everywhere, including into the atmosphere, that both of those are just broken models based on false premises that benefit a very few people and that they need to be changed. Um, so that's, that's sort of how I got into climate movement organizing. Um, and I haven't really looked back since. <laughs> I love that. I love that. It's such a long journey too. I mean, just having a father in that field. So it was already on your radar and then you meet the right people at the right time. And yep. you know, it's like you were meant to be doing this work. Um, you know, you would think with every, with all of the evidence and all of the data coming out, these big corporations who are using and abusing the earth and other people, you think it would be enough for them to make a change. Why do you think that that hasn't happened yet? 
Oh, that's a big question. And I don't purport, you know, this is something I struggle with in the book um, is there's this class of people I refer to as the Pruitts and the Pruitts is that's like my eponym. It's based on Scott Pruitt, who was the first EPA director under Donald Trump, who was literally, uh, you know, he was a lobbyist for the coal industry and then Trump brought him in to regulate the coal industry. No conflict of interest there. To me, he's representative of a whole class of people who really have made an astounding choice to me. Like, you know, and the the sort of thought experiment I do in the book is like, imagine if you were given the choice to pursue a course of action that would make you enormously wealthy and influential, but there was like a one in 10 chance or even a one in 1000 chance that it would like kill millions of people and destabilize human civilization. If you took it, that like you'd be a really bad dude, you know, like really you were rolling the dice with things things that you shouldn't be rolling the dice with. Those are other people's lives. Um, and now imagine the choice was one in 10. That, that would be pathological. Yeah. And then imagine that like every expert in the world was telling you, hey, if you continue to do this, we are like 99% sure that like food and water scarcity on this planet is going to increase, that many people are going to have to be forced to migrate because of extreme weather, that cities will be destroyed, that the coastlines will change shape, um, that we won't be able to go outside in the summer like what's happening in Oregon right now. And even then they continue to pursue their course. Um, It's really hard to fathom. And it's something that I really grapple with because on the one hand, I feel rage towards these people, both as a millennial who's going to, you know, live to see the consequences of their decisions, but also as, as somebody who feels like, who knows that every human life is equally and inherently valuable. Um, and to see very rich people throwing other people onto the bus for profit is, is it's like a, it's a morally grotesque picture. Yeah. Um, but I grapple with this thing that like, I really can't get inside their heads. I don't, mm. I don't really understand it. Um, I think there are two things. I mean, the most basic story is like the raw profit motive. You know, these people are sociopaths. They've, you know, the main source of meaning in their lives is to get as wealthy as possible. And so they've, um, they've discovered a way to do that and kind of, kind of like myopically block out all other consequences. But I think it also goes deeper than that. I think there's a real resistance in Western culture under capitalism towards recognizing any sort of interdependence. Right. If this is like me, I'm going my own, I'm going to make my own profit. I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. And like, if you fail, that's your fault. If you succeed, that's your, that's uh, all about you. Um, And it's sort of like, it's a very masculine thing. You know, it's like me, here I am, this individuated person. Um, And I don't affect nobody and nobody affects me. And of course the climate crisis totally undermines that, that already shallow worldview. Because like literally everything we're doing and everything somebody like Scott Pruitt is doing is affecting life on planet Earth for millions of people. And his decisions are massively influential. Um, And um, it reveals this web of interdependence. Like all of our actions um, affect each other. Uh, And um, the leftist response to that is to try to promote solidarity because we're all connected. We have to, we have to instill a valid an ethic of solidarity. Um, I think for the Pruitts, 
I don't know, it's so anathema to their worldview that they just reject it. They, mm-hmm. uh, they reject the thing that's in front of their face because to accept it would be to like, uh, <laughs> to undermine the structures of belief that they've, that they've built uh, inaccurately for themselves throughout their whole lives. And that's a very big sacrifice. So um, I don't, I think there are some people that the narrative goes, oh, we just have to like give them more facts. We just have to like reason with them. And they'll, I think that, I mean, honestly, I think that ship has sailed. Mm -hmm. I think the real question is how do we build enough power among the mostly working class people who are on the front lines of climate change to overcome their power in the political system and to regulate them into the ground, you know? Um, so for me, you know, they are, <laughs> they're, they're truly an ethical mystery to me. Um, and also like something that I feel, uh, it can feel overwhelming to think of the evil of their acts, but I'm not also not overly concerned with them as individuals. They're representatives of a larger system. And I think the thing that is incumbent on us is to create the political power to change that system. And I think really that's what you're doing in your new book, Warmth. I mean, it's interesting because you can feel the passion behind <coughs> what you're saying and how many, so many people feel this way. Mm-hmm. Um, I love though that you took a different tact in your book. You're writing it to an unborn child of yours, you know, that you're thinking of maybe having or not having. Mm-hmm. Why was that approach important for you to to have in the book? Or did you even intend that when you first started writing it? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think I surprisingly I did, I was writing in that voice from the very beginning. I think when I started writing this book. And this book began as like random jottings on my notes app on my phone that I did like on the subway to work. I love you know. Um, by the time I wrote this book, I'd been sort of in the trenches of climate organizing for six or seven years, um, and it was really heavy work. You know, um, I felt like there was this glut of thought and feeling that was sort of like stuck in my throat, um, but that I couldn't really attend to it because I was just like doing email all the time, you know, yeah. on conference calls trying to ag- organize this action or that lobby day. Um, and so I began what I would describe as a kind of autotherapeutic process to like unwind that knot and see what was inside of it uh, via writing. And I sort of had an intuition that if I didn't do that, if I didn't open up that black box and I just like let those heavy thoughts and feelings stay there inarticulate, then they would, I, it would like, I would burn out. I would not yeah. be able to continue the work. So, like, um, so, but even, I mean, I started writing this in, what year is it now? 2018. <laughs> um, and even then I felt like there weren't many cultural avenues for having emotionally vulnerable conversations about the climate crisis. Right. Um, like this was something that made me very sad on a daily basis. Uh, and I didn't really know where to take that. Um, and so I kind of created this discourse partner for myself, an imaginary discourse partner. Uh, and the more I wrote, the more, the more I realized like, this is, I think I've sort of low key been excited about the prospect of being a dad for a while, but it also seemed increasingly untenable to just sort of like bring a kid into the world without like thinking very seriously about what the world I was bringing them into was and how I would talk to them about it. 
And so it was sort of dovetailed. It was like, uh, I created a discourse partner for myself. I kind of realized that this, I was talking to somebody in the future and that that person was very connected to me. Um, and I also had this very rational thought, like if I ever start a family, I want to actually be able, like I, in a very practical sense, like give my child something to like, that could start a conversation about this, frankly, like terrifying situations they've been brought into through no choice of their own. Um, and that just kind of became a productive vein of inquiry for me and like a way to access my own vulnerability because I was like talking to a very young person in my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When did you know, like, Oh my gosh, like this should be a book. Like I, I want to make this into a book. How far into it were you? Um, well, I was lucky enough to um, uh, get a writer's residency um, out in Point Reyes, California, which is like, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful places in the country um, in 2018. Uh, it was just two weeks, but it was like I had sort of pitched them on a vague project um, that was related to this book. And um, those two weeks were terrifying in a way because I just like, I like took a break from organizing and I'd been on like, like nine conference calls a day. And like, suddenly it's just me alone in a shed uh, <laughs> with a blank screen. Um, and I was like, Oh God, what have I done? But, um, this episode is also brought to you by Lugs. Lugs is a brand you probably remember it started back in the nineties, but they've never wavered from having their pulse on what is stylish and also realistically priced. I wore the boots today on my trip to Costco because why else do you leave the house? And it was so cute. It totally uplifted my entire outfit. I felt like I was kind of on a runway in a lot of ways because it was just so chic and so cute with what I was wearing. And I was actually wearing leggings with it. So it's surprising that I felt so, I don't know, so chic, but that's kind of the beauty of the brand. And if you use my code unstressed, that will save you 30% off at lugs.com. That's L-U-G-Z.com. And just something that I want you to remember about the brand. It's a great brand, not just for you, but for the entire family. So they're stylish, realistically priced, and great for everyday wear. And one another thing that I think is really important is that they're really comfortable. So not only are you going to feel cute when you go out to the grocery store or wherever you're going, but you're also going to feel comfortable and chic at the same time. So be sure to head on over to lugs.com and use my code unstressed to save. You know, I sort of tried to be patient with myself and those two weeks ended up being pretty productive, you know, and I wrote, I don't know how much I wrote, like 40 pages or something, but reading back over some of that, I was like, okay, this was sort of a test run to see if this is real. And I, I'm happy with some of the stuff I produced. And I also feel like there are, there are further avenues to be explored and those avenues might amount to a book. So um, then I got a longer fellowship to go to Australia where I just sat my ass down every day, every weekday. And like, it's very unglamorous. I was like, I'm, you know, I can't leave the office until I've written 600 words and that's, wow. uh, and they accumulate. Where did that discipline come from? Oh gosh. Uh, <laughs> my mom would say, um, <laughs> like I was always the kid on the school bus that like wanted to finish my homework before the bus arrived. Oh, so I wow. could like, and, but it's less like I like work and more like I love play and I want it yeah. to be unadulterated. And so I want to like get the work out of the way. Um, but 
I don't know. This is a funny answer, but um, I uh, I mentioned in high school I was sort of a jock. I was I was the captain of my high school wrestling team for a while, and wrestling was a big part of my life. Um, it's a very very. Your ears different. are intact, though. Well done. My ears are intact. I actually did have to get surgery for cauliflower. Oh, okay. It's very, <laughs> it's very subtle. Um, and in many ways, I hated wrestling. It was a very misogynistic culture. I had to cut a lot of weight. It was like very psychologically unhealthy for a young man in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was an amazing cultivator of discipline because it was just like brutally difficult physical activity every day for months. Uh, and it was way harder than school, which I think is what attracted me to it. Um, so I think that helped a little bit too. But also, I don't know, I, I, um, I'm not disciplined about things I'm not uh, I don't feel are meaningful. <laughs> so it's not just like ambient discipline. It's I, I do have my few things that I am that feel important and that I want to get done. And this was definitely one of them. Yeah. And going back to your work, I mean, you can see you've dedicated, you know, most of your adult life already to that and it will continue probably for decades to come. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think as moms listening to this, you know, we feel overwhelmed, we feel anxiety, we feel grief about this, this problem. Um, How do you not just numb it all out? Because at the end of the day, doesn't it kind of feel inevitable? And we've already had our kids, most of us. So we're like, well, you know, we're screwed. (laughs) How do you you get through the day? Yeah. I think that was one of the questions I was trying to parse out in this book. It was like, you know, it says on the back, um, what I wrote for the back is how do we go on in a world that may not? Yeah. And by a world that may not, I don't mean like the entire world's going to explode or the human species are, is going to go extinct. But the world as we know it is being rocked by climate change and that'll, that'll continue to happen. Um, and the first thing I want to say is I just like, I empathize, you know, like uh, I think the most important step is to like for people feeling overwhelmed is, uh, and I've appreciated this when it's been done to me is just be like, I see you, you know, I'm in the same place. This is really hard. This is really, really hard. Um, I think people should be gentle with themselves (laughs) when they're feeling overwhelmed. Like that's not a failure on your part. This is a legitimately, this is a legitimately difficult situation, not difficult, scary Mm -hmm. and enraging Um, and grief inducing. Um, But I think I would say a few things, some practical and some, um, I I guess, more spiritual. On a practical side, um, the narrative of inevitability is deeply false, deeply, deeply false. There is some climate change baked in already, and that's, there's without a doubt. And it's, and it's, and the stuff that's baked in already will cause like massive amounts of damage. that, That is the case. But climate change is a massive spectrum, right? It's not like nuclear war. It's not like you either press the button to launch the missile or not. Um, It's not a binary problem. There is a huge difference and a huge array of difference between two degrees Celsius warming and six degrees Celsius of warming. Um, Six degrees being what we'd arrive at if we just did nothing about the problem. And two degrees being like the thing that we're aiming for in the Paris Accords. And between those two poles, two degrees is like, still pretty horrific and scary 
but six degrees like human civilization is brought to its knees like there's not we can't maintain our institutions um, we can't grow food um at quantities to feed the number of people there are there's not enough water um and all along the spectrum every every inch we move the needle along those spe- that spectrum saves millions of lives mm. so like actually you can see of it like oh my gosh all is lost already or you could see it as like every bit of action we do now saves millions of people. Like the stakes are that high. Um, and I sometimes find that to be empowering. Like this is, it's like a, it's like a, it's like the great moral battle of our time. I, I don't love war metaphor, but I think it's accurate sometimes. Um, there are these companies and the politicians they buy that uh, are dead set on maintaining a status quo that is going to <laughs> destroy our only home. And it, it, we, we have to defeat them. We have to take them out of power. Um, um, and so to me, that's motivating. Uh, and the other thing that's motivating, I think, um, and I don't know who said this. I, I think it's just like a quote that makes the rounds. But um, I think that often there's assumption that hope produces action. Like if I didn't feel so overwhelmed, I would like get involved in my local chapter of Mothers Out Front, which is a mom's group about climate change or the Sunrise Movement or whatever it is. Uh, But I just feel so depressed, so I can't. I think actually causal chain is reversed, that action produces hope. Like once you start engaging in political activity around the climate crisis and feel yourself embedded in a community of people that care about the same stuff, for me, that's been incredibly uplifting. Um, And which is not to say that it's not hard, and I imagine for lots of overburdened moms, it's like ugh, another thing. But even putting in one call to your congressperson, um, uh, I think it's helpful. But also, I mean, you know, just a pitch for the climate movement. It's a great community, you know. If you want to like <laughs> get away from your toddlers for a second and like interact with other adults who share your values, getting involved in the climate movement is like a deeply good way to do that. There's this um, amazing feminist theorist, uh, and genius named Donna Haraway, who writes a lot about the Anthropocene, this like era of um, increasing human control of the planet. But she has this concept of staying with the trouble. Um, and mm-hmm. I think um, to me, that's an exhortation to not banish the overwhelm. Like the overwhelm is actually, I don't want to accuse people of who, I don't want to accuse people who are trying to keep the overwhelm at bay of practicing climate denial, because I think it's a totally human instinct and I mm-hmm. indulge in it as well, just to put one foot in front of the other, but to do that constantly and to do that as the, as like the modus operandi in your life as a whole, I do think you're sort of intentionally blinding yourself to one of the basal realities of life on earth in the 21st century. Um, and to move through the overwhelm and to contend with it and to sit with it and and um, feel the grief and know that the grief is justified and that it's not, you're not alone in it um, and that it needn't be banished. That in fact, it's like a thing to be examined. Uh, um, I think it's really powerful. Um, and in general, I think the ethic of, um, there's an instinct to move away from negative feeling immediately which again makes deep sense. And people, if people are practicing that, they're not, uh, it's nothing bad, but um, I think a lot can be learned by just like 
trying to sit with it and see like what, what it's made up of. Um, mm-hmm. And that was what this book was for me. I mean, I, you know, I there were basically, say that. Yeah. Yeah, there were, there were mornings, I think, in, you know, in my first years of climate activism where I felt like I couldn't get out of bed and they were rare. Those feelings of overwhelm. Mostly I was like, do, do, do. I was like writing my emails. I was in meetings and then occasionally there would be these moments of lucidity where it felt like I was um, actually contending with what was actually happening. Um, and I could barely move. Um, and eventually I was like, those moments feel hard, but they also feel very real. Um, and I want to, part of this book was kind of like unfolding those moments and seeing what was inside of them. Um, and it was helpful for me, you know, it didn't change anything about the situation. And I wouldn't say I'm no longer overwhelmed, but I have, I guess, being able to be more, uh, sort of emotionally and intellectually precise about what that feeling is and where it comes from um, has been really helpful. I mean, is that what you want this book to do for for the reader who picks it up? Do you want them to be able to process these emotions to even become aware? Is that the intention of the book? Yeah. I mean, I'm reluctant to say that there's one intention of the book that, you know, I think there's, um, I'm hopeful that different people will find different things in it. Um, But... I guess in an overarching way, you know, this book was my attempt to like face the massive edifice of the climate crisis and find my own emotional foothold that felt um, viable. Yeah. If it helps people do that, go through that same process in their own right, um, then I'll be immensely happy. But I think it is something, I think it is a process that people can't sort of go through by proxy that they need to sort of, um, you know, this is a, this is a thing that is happening and that is going to continue to happen to all of us and our families for the rest of our lives. Um, and you'll see it in the headlines. You'll also experience it in your day-to-day life. Um, and it's really going to shape things. Um, and I think doing the work to figure out how you relate to it in a way that's not just like rejection or numbness or compartmentalization um, will make you both more politically effective, but it will also make you more resilient. You know, um, I think if your head is intentionally turned, then you're going to get blindsided at some point. I love that. I love that. It's true. Um, with everything that you have researched and studied and now intuitively know, what do you want the audience to remember from this talk? that I see you in your grief and your overwhelm. I feel it too. Um, And those are not things to be rejected and compartmentalized, but to be examined and sat with. Um, And they're also not mutually exclusive with taking political action. Um, In fact, I would argue that taking political action, um, effective political action is difficult if you haven't contended with the full weight of the climate crisis. I point to this distinction in the book between knowing something and realizing something, which is something I think about a lot. Um, and that, that distinction comes from the, the theorist Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, um, who is another genius. Um, and she talked about um, the gap between no, knowing and realizing is the gap between taking something as true um, and taking something as real, which feels a bit esoteric, 
Um, but um, I think in Western thought, we often conflate the two, but they're two very different things. I think truth is instantaneous. You know, you either know a fact or you don't. It's like a light switching. I think realization is a process, is a long process to assimilate something as like truly real in your mind. And the example she points out to, um, she and I both um, have a meditation practice and in most meditation practices, like the, what you're doing is trying to realize a set of um, propositions the truth of which has been articulated to you from the start, right? At the beginning of whatever meditation retreat, somebody will say, you know, whatever it is, everything is impermanent or um, um, including the self, et cetera, et cetera. And you can hear those statements and you can take them as true, but people practice a lifetime to take them as real. Um, and for her, the experience that most vividly uh, demonstrated this gap was, um, when she was diagnosed with the breast cancer that she eventually, uh, that eventually killed her. Um, the difference between knowing she would die and realizing she would die mm -hmm. um, was to her pretty vast. Um, it took a lot of patient practice to, to assimilate that reality. Um, and I think the same is true for the climate crisis, um, which, is, which is a form of death writ large, I would say, is a lot of people know about the climate crisis I think we all at some point are going to have to realize it and whether we realize it once our home is destroyed or we realize mm -hmm. it proactively um, and intentionally in a way that actually empowers us to take political action, that is uh, our choice. You know, I think the risk here is it always sounds like a chore, like, oh God, now I got to realize climate change. I got to like, I can feed my kid in the morning or whatever, get them right. to get them to school. Um, but I would argue that for me, it's actually made life a lot easier in the long run. It's made life a lot easier because there's not this like looming inarticulate mass of fear and grief. Um, I've in some ways I've taken the time to understand it and I feel myself to be on more stable ground as I face, you know, the coming decades, which are going to be tumultuous. Yeah. Yeah. How do your parents feel about being grandparents to uh, a, a maybe baby? Um, in contrast with my, uh, <laughs> equivocations, they're unequivocally enthusiastic. <laughs> um, it's not a bit hasty. So, um, yeah, we'll see. Well, I think with the work that you're doing with warmth out in the world, um, I think we're all going to become, I don't know, we're all going to realize better, you know, what's really going on and be able to take the political action, take action that doesn't make us feel overwhelmed anymore that makes us actually feel empowered. So I just want to say thank you for, for all of the hours, all of the dedication, all of the discipline that you have been uh, putting out into the world through this work, um, because it can only improve, I think. And, and the more mothers, especially who don't maybe feel overwhelmed, you know, we want to protect the planet for our kids. If it's, yeah. if it's not even for us, it's for our kids. I think we're absolutely right there with you. So thank you. Thank you so much. And I, I guess on that note, on that adjutory note, I do want to say I'm not an exceptional person. I'm just a normal person. And there are many normal people in the climate movement who experience the same sort of anxieties and overwhelms and stressors and balancing acts that I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast are. Uh, and getting involved in the climate movement isn't some big thing. It's just a small step and then another small step. Um, and so we invite you to get involved.
Yeah. And if you're listening now, all of those groups will be in the show notes for you to check out. Thank you, Daniel. This is great. Yeah. Thanks so much, Liz. Thanks again to our sponsor, Coso Drink. Be sure to head on over to rscoso.com. That's rskoso.com. And use my code UNSTRESSED to save. You have been listening to the Motherhood Unstressed Podcast. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.